Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is, is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're going to talk this morning, and I had two titles, it could be, uh, joy in the waiting, or after suffering, glory, take, take your pick. But in the context of sonship, in the to- context of joy, in Romans chapter 8, Paul brings us to this word, suffering. In verse 11, where we ended last week, we read, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Excuse me, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may obtain, we also may be glorified with Him. In the context of suffering and sonship, Paul brings us, in the context of sonship, Paul brings us to suffering. In the chapter, in a chapter of great joy, great assurance in the faith, in a chapter about the fatherhood of God and the Spirit of God indwelling us, we have this about suffering. Glorification comes on the back end of suffering, provided we suffer with Him that we may be glorified with Him. Suffering to glorification. And so what do, what do we make of all this? How, how do we think through, biblically and joyfully, suffering? And so there are several different types of suffering in this world. And some of these questions and answers we're going to get today address some of the deepest questions that humans have asked, that mankind has asked, down through human history. And it's not just humans, it's deep questions that you and I have both asked. In times of difficulty and suffering, questions like, is this for any reason at all? Is there any purpose in this? Questions like, where is God? Questions like, is the enemy more powerful than God's will? Questions like, is God even around? Is the God of deism the real God? Who just winds things up and lets things go according to natural law? Deep questions, questions that we've cried through and we've prayed through and wrestled with. Questions that we typically want to avoid. But it's a reality for all of us to some degree or another. As, as stated last week, a majority of our lives, for, for most of us, are going to be filled with joy and excitement and really wonderful things. I think for, for a majority of Christians, we should be, the expectation should be, even in deep darkness, that God is going to bring us joy in our life. And we're going to have joy through it. And this life for us is not one that we just have to walk around being depressed. There is a big difference between clinical depression and sinful depression, by the way lest we feel guilty if you deal with the clinical side of things. But for all of us, we should be thinking through these things for when the time of difficulty comes. It's going to come. And I would rather you be prepared for when that comes than unprepared. I would rather be prepared for for when difficult seasons come than, than rather than being unprepared. So let's work through a few different kinds of suffering, and then let's address specifically what we're talking about here today. So number one, there's consequential suffering. Sinful choices have consequences. If you make bad decisions, there's going to be bad results. This is a, a sowing and reaping, this principle that's unilaterally, it's just everywhere, everywhere you see it in every society around the world. If you make bad decisions, things are going to go badly. 
And that's just, the, that's just the way life is. If you do something that's silly, then your results are not going to be, over time, good. If you do bad things, then in time, if you keep making bad and foolish decisions, then what you're going to reap is terrible things. It's decisions. And so if you do this over the decades and over your life, and you look, man, why, why does God have me here? It's really easy to say. It's like you, you put yourself here, man or woman, through foolish living. Sinful choices have bad consequences. Suffering also comes from satanic attack. The second aspect of suffering we have to deal with, the principalities and powers and spiritual forces in dark places. The enemy of our soul hates us. And the enemy of the world is seeking to bring, and as he governs uh, all of the things that go on in the sinful world, not as supreme ruler, but as the primary influencer of this thing we call the world, Satan hates people, and he hates Christians, and he hates the mission of God. And so we see in the Bible, all through the Bible, the enemy coming against God's people and coming against God, trying to wreak havoc. And in so many places and in so many areas, we see that, the, that Satan shoots his arrows, and Christians, even in our flesh, embrace wrongly can embrace these arrows and be tempted by the devil. They want to take you out. That's their goal. And so temptation, Satan's devices, he's tempting. Tempting with wealth, tempting with being known, tempted with whatever your fancy is. Temp tempted. Here, I'll, I'll give you what you want if you'll just not submit your life and deny yourself and follow Jesus. I'll give you what you want. Satan's been giving people what they want for years as long as they walk away from Jesus. Suffering also, third form of suffering, is suffering that comes from God's curse. After the fall, God cursed the earth. We have a broken earth. Even under the rule of God, the earth is broken. We have natural disasters that weren't there in Eden. And when we see things going on, hurricanes, whatever it may be, this earth, we're reminded, is under a curse. And we wait for the redemption of this earth as well as our bodies. We get into that here in a little bit. And then, the fourth category is what I ventured into last week a little bit. We have suffering that comes directly from the hand of a loving Father to us. Suffering that comes directly from the hand of a loving Father to us. Now, all, all suffering and all pain are in the hands of God the Father as He works all things for our good. But there are some specific things where we just... We don't necessarily know, and we can drive ourselves crazy thinking about it, but we have to ask the question, how did Jesus get fathered by His Heavenly Father? God the Father fathered His Son, and He fathers us. And what God the Father had for God the Son was challenges and difficulties. It was communion with His Son. It was in the garden, prayer with His Son, regular communion with His Son. But God the Father had difficulty, challenge, pain, and suffering for His Son as well. And God the Father has challenges for us and suffering for us that come from His loving smile, not His growling anger. Satan does not have victory. In his attempt to do evil, what he intends his work for, what does God intend it for? Good. Satan does not get the last word. God does. God intends it for good. Sinful choices do not have the last word. Can I get an amen and a thank the Lord for that? Sinful choices do not have the last word over the children of God. God does. And in due season, God is working it all out for our good. All of it. For our good. In the best way that we can possibly define good. Not in a silly, foolish, self-desire kind of good, fluffy Care Bear good that we talk about in our world today. What is good? Blind people don't know what good is. And often, Christians have to learn what good is. But God is working it all for our good. Some in this life, it's confusing, suffer more than others. But everyone suffers. It's, it's really odd. There's some families that just seem like they're under attack. You look at their life, and I've got an, I've got an aunt. She passed away years later. Uh, her daughter passed away, my cousin. And then a few years later, the dad passed away. And my cousin now is left. He's in his late 30s. His dad, mom, sister, all dead, and his nephew. And you wonder, what in the world? 
And, and you'll drive yourself crazy trying to figure that out. And it'd be absolutely cruel to try to blame my cousin or somebody. And the goal is not to just introspect people to death, to wonder why did this happen, why did this happen. A lot of times with pain and difficulty, and I'll just say this and we'll get to this here in a little bit. You can demand answers from God, or you can be okay with Him holding your hand and being with you. And you can drive yourself nuts trying to figure out why. Or you can just hold His hand as He holds yours tighter and say, I trust you, Father. I don't understand, but I don't have to. So is pain and suffering, is it arbitrary? Is there a purpose to it? It's kind of a cliche thing, you know, everything happens for a reason. Well, what's the foundation behind that? Is it just a thing to say to bring suffering people comfort? Is it mean or even somehow wrong to maintain biblically and theologically that pain somehow does have a purpose even if we don't understand? Is it cruel to say that or to think that? Because most of the time, and I'm stealing this quote from a quote from uh, the What Have You podcast and flipping it a little bit, most of the time, suffering does not feel like what it's accomplishing. Because what it's accomplishing in you is it's making you humble and grateful to the Lord, and it's, it's driving you to Him in prayer, and it's making you want to commune with Him and be desperate for Him and be desperate for the, for the help of other Christians. But suffering seems painful, and it is painful. It doesn't just seem painful. But it doesn't feel like what it's accomplishing. And then years later, you're able to look back and say, you know what? That was awful, but it was precious. And if you can't years later say that, if you're the Lord's, there's going to be in the scope of eternity a time where you can say, God was with me. And I never understood it, but he was with me. And I understand it now. So should we all become deists? I mean, we'll never know the purpose of everything difficult that happens. Or can we deeply trust that maybe God is a little bit wiser than me and maybe some things are higher than my thoughts and some ways that God has maybe higher than my ways? Are we going to say, I have to know? So for the Christian, I think God is going to show us here today that the future, as we think about this topic, the future for us gives meaning and hope for the present. The future for us gives meaning and hope for the present. Let's think big picture, okay? So first, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. What a provocative statement. The suffering of this present time in Paul's day, that would have been persecution under Roman rule. That would have been a church that was under deep persecution from the Jewish people, from the Roman Empire, from the enemy. And in that context, Paul says, the present sufferings that we face, keep in mind the readers here were probably of those who were crucified or burned alive by Nero not many years later human torches. And Paul says, I consider the present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. And in, in our day, um, we don't face some of the same difficulties that they faced. In, in a lot of ways, in the most loving way I can possibly say this about myself and about everybody in here, when it comes to this particular issue, we're we don't face persecution and suffering like the rest of the world does in so many ways. We still ought to be incredibly grateful for where God has placed us. And for all our complaining and for all our frustration with politics and for different things that aren't going the way that you would like them to go, we go home at night and we sleep in a warm bed. And we have rain that's blocked because we have a roof and a home. And we're allowed to live there and stay there. We don't have people right now, like we do in China, taking a big backhoe to the back of this building and tearing the building down as we're gathering. And then me walking out of here in chains. We don't have that. But when we talk about and think about this, it, across the board, whether your life is a, a life of leisure in 
Hawaii or the Bahamas and you just live on the beach all the time, or whether you're in India, it doesn't really matter. All the places in between, we all experience death. We all experience difficult situations that we cannot understand. We all experience that. It's just a part of what it means to be human. And no, no, notice Paul helping those who suffer by way of theology. And I want us to see how helpful this is. It, okay, deep, deep, deep suffering. Within deep suffering, there is the possibility of deep expectation. Meaning, those who have suffered much have a greater frame of reference for what this verse is talking about. Meaning, I've not suffered very much in my life. I've had a really great life. I just simply have not suffered that much. And I have less of a frame of reference for what this verse and the comfort that this verse can bring than somebody who suffered really, really deeply. Because if what I have experienced isn't worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed, well, what I've experienced generally in my life is just pretty wonderful things. I've had some hard things, yeah, but... And if, if what future glory is like isn't worth comparing to what I've experienced, well, then future glory is going to be great. But I've not experienced real, real, real deep suffering. But for those who have experienced deep, deep suffering, or those who Paul knows are going to watch their family members, or, or that most likely are going to watch their family members die by way of persecution, Paul says that suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. And if that kind of suffering... If you took a scale, the people in here have cried the most tears and the deepest crevices of your heart and your emotional life have been opened up in ways that nobody else's deep crevices of their emotional life have been opened up. And if you've experienced that, and if what you've experienced is not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed, how amazing is the glory that's going to be revealed? The deep, deep suffering that's there that just is like this grand canyon in your soul. How much more positive emotions are going to be tapped out inside of you? How much deeper is the goodness of the glory that's going to be revealed that's going to open to the opposite of those sad emotions, joyful emotions? So much so that for eternity, we'll look back and say, it wasn't worth comparing. It wasn't even worth, I can't, it's not even the same category. It's not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. And in the context of sonship, Sons and daughters of the living God who walk this road and get dusty and get bloody. And who cry tears and their face gets crusty-eyed. Paul said, I promise, I promise, just hang in there with me. What you're experiencing in the grand scheme of things, in the arc of eternity, isn't worth comparing to what's coming your way. And this isn't meant to be a get, you know, get happy quick fix or to take away or drown away all sorrow. But it is for the sufferer. Sometimes we need to just weep with those who weep, but sometimes we need to remind them of truth. Paul did. The Holy Spirit had him do so. Think about the eternal joy that awaits in light of such a provocative flamboyant statement. Your suffering isn't worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. It's amazing. He uses future. He uses the eternity. The etern like all eternity to bring comfort in the now. In time, we will understand cognitively what we don't understand about suffering now. But to get that full picture... By the grace of God, we have to be comfortable and okay with waiting. And waiting in our society, the way it's conditioned in our world, we have Amazon Prime. And Amazon Prime is too slow. We want day of delivery. We want it now. The ancient discipline of waiting seems so elusive. We want it now. You'll get your answers. Wait. In time, in time, God will reveal to us all that He was doing under His fatherly rule over our lives. We worship, we work, and we wait. Now Paul, what he's going to do here, and I, I think this is interesting, you, you read as many commentaries you read on verses 19 down through 22, you'll get as many interpretations. 
And so I, I tread into this lightly, saying that there are many people who have seen this in different ways. But I, I, here's what I simply think this is for us this morning. And I think this is what Paul's doing here. Is what I think is that Paul is going to give us an example of the creation and fall of the created order. What I think Paul is going to do is he's going to give us a case study. And he's going to show us a pattern of waiting that's observable in creation. He's going to help us to wait. He's going to help us be patient with the Lord. He's going to help us as children who are holding on to our Heavenly Father and saying, Now, 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 gummies. Now, 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 fruit snacks. Now, 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 goldfish. Now, 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 now. Just maybe that parent has a little bit more wisdom than to keep giving gummy bears or goldfish. And just maybe God has a little bit more wisdom than you. Maybe. And so as we prepare, or as we get encouraged, if you're currently in it, as we prepare and think about, and we shouldn't be thinking, well, wonder what's the next thing coming around the list. Just be ready when things, minimally, you're going to have a spouse that passes away one day. Parents, like hard things are coming, let's be as prepared as we can. Not fearful, not shaking in our boots, but let us be prepared in light of eternity. So what Paul's going to do, he's going to turn the corner and talk about creation. And there is a pattern of waiting that's observable in creation for us. And creation itself, even, is waiting for its own redemption and the revealing of the sons of God. Let's, let's read this somewhat confusion, confusing passage. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now let's pause real quick. Who are the sons of God again? We are, the church. Okay? Ladies? You're redeemed. You have. You don't get a second class inheritance. You have the exact same inheritance as the sons of God, and you were called uh, the sons of God. Okay. And so, creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. So something in the future, waiting for us, the children of God, who are the sons of God right now, to be redeemed and to be their ruler. Creation wants us to rule them as we were intended to in the garden. Creation is longing for this. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Okay, case study, creation. Creation was subjected to futility. Now when Christ returns, this is important for us to understand, when Christ returns, we, the children of God, will receive resurrected bodies. Flesh and bone, just like we have right now, but resurrected. Never to grow old, never to be diseased, never to be sick. It, we will be as Adam and Eve were created in the garden, ruling and reigning over this creation. Okay? And we'll have a redeemed, we'll, we'll, be, we'll all be redeemed. We will not forget the person and work of Jesus. The Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world will be our King and we will serve Him. And we will have resurrected bodies. We will rule like Adam and Eve did in Eden. And creation is longing for this to take place. Creation wants us and is longing for us to be its ruler. That's the creation mandate, that we would go out into all the world and that we would take dominion. And when Christ returns, when we receive our rest, resurrected bodies, we will have dominion of this earth. And until then, by the grace of God, as the kingdom of God advances, we keep staking our, our, our flag in the ground and saying the dominion of Christ is here. Where we go, the reign of Christ goes. And so when that happens, creation will get what it's longing for. It will get its rulers back. And in verse 20, we're told that creation was subjected to futility by God after the fall. Now, it's interesting here. Creation is assigned anthropomorphic virtues, okay? So, like, spoken of as if creation is anthro-human, is a human being. It's, it's spoken of, it's given, like, character traits of a human. Creation is. And it tells us that creation was subjected not willingly. Now, C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, has a really interesting chapter on animal pain. It's really odd, but it's very interesting. And what he talks about in that chapter is that, is that uh, the animal kingdom didn't have a choice in the fall. Only, human, only mankind did. It was, it was Adam who sinned, not the leopard. 
But it was the leopard who felt the consequences of human sin. That's why the God-man Jesus, when he comes fully God, fully man, and he lives a perfect life, dies in the place of sinners and raised, and he's now reigning and ruling in heaven and earth, the promise that comes with his body is that the animal kingdom will be restored as well. Everything that was fallen in Eden because of human sin, the one human, the single human, this God-man human who came and lived this perfect life, bought it back. And so you one day, one day will be talking with cheetahs. You one day will be living this earth, ruling with the restored earth. It's good news. It's really cool. I'm going to own a cheetah. I've always loved cheetahs since I was a little kid. I don't know. But what C.S. Lewis talks about is that, that creation itself was subjected to futility, and it wasn't what creation wanted. God cursed creation because of human failing and sin. And so it's spoken of as if it was human. And creation longs, longs to function and be ruled by her rulers, the sons and daughters of God. Longs for this. This very earth cries out for this. And it was subjected to futility. And this is exactly what we see. And one of the reasons I love the Bible so much, subjected to futility. In, a, in our world that has rejected God, futility is exactly what they say creation is. It's futile. It's meaningless. As Jeff Durbin does, it's just, it says, it's just stardust bumping into stardust. There's no meaning. Everything happened by, by chance. Matter itself is eternal. And order, disorder that has no mind, unintelligent matter, gave birth to more and more order, and thinking people believe this? Evolution is, it, it just doesn't happen to not be true. Evolution is insane. It's not rational. It doesn't have the facts. It's led by people who Romans 1 tells us that their understanding has been darkened. And so there's a, a, a something going on in the mind that thinks about things in the wrong way. And it looks at the created order and says, futile, meaningless, no point. And creation knows better. It hates it. That the world looks at it and stands in awe and either worships it instead of the creator or looks at creation and says, meaningless. That's what a godless society in the world says. The conclusion that has to come from if we remove God is nihilism. Life is meaningless, creation meaningless, all stardust, life, morality, right, wrong, meaningless. And creation was subjected to be interpreted and seen as that. And in fact, apart from God, an atheistic worldview, that's exactly what creation is, meaningless. Why did God do this? Because only mankind sinned, creation had to pay the price. So why did God do this? Well, it says that God did this for a reason, in hope. Look here, it's kind of a weird way to talk about God, but biblical hope and hope when it relates to God is different. We'll see here in a second. For creation itself was subjected to futility, so by God it was subjected under this curse, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, because of God, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, in hope, why did God do this? Well, in hope that things would be restored, or in hope that creation itself would see and come to the point in the future they would see the sons of God being revealed. Now, it's important to know the difference between pipe dream hope and biblical hope, especially as it relates to God and humanity. Hope in the Bible, even for human beings, is certain. Okay, we have a future certain hope in the return of Christ. We have a certain hope. It's not a pipe dream. It's not, well, I hope this happens, like a dream. And, and a lot of the ways we think about hope, like currently in the modern narrative of what hope is, it's just a lot like a, it's a, it's like a, it's a wish or it's a dream. You blow the candle out and you make a wish. I hope this is true. That's not the biblical definition of hope at all. Hope is solid, it's concrete, it's firm, it's built on the very promises of God. And when God hopes, it's just as certain as the hope we are putting our hope in. It is 
based on what he knows will happen. It's based on the arc of creation. Biblical hope is certain. And our future hope, we know, is based on promises. The hope of God is based on his very decrees and his omniscience. God's hope is firmly rooted in him being all-powerful. And if he hopes for the sons of God to be revealed one day to creation itself, it's based on him being powerful enough to bring that about. Do you know that the future is not just possibly going in the direction of restoration? Maybe things will work out for God in the end. The future is written. The Son of Man went as was written of Him. And so does all human history. So this creation was subjected, and this is going to bring help as we think about the big picture here. God knows all things, and the arc of human history has a future. So we have creation, then we have fall, and the fall, everything is subjected to futility, okay? And the hope that creation would be revealed to the sons of, uh, that the sons and daughters of God would be revealed to creation in the hope that these things would be fixed. So we have creation, we have fall, we have Christ's redemption, where he brings cosmic re re reconciliation, where he procures it for us. And then we have future restoration, where all things will be restored and made right. So the arc from history to future is toward restoration. And in that hope, God subjected creation to futility. Creation will be set free from its bondage one day. And creation will be restored. And creation will be made or remade new. And I think this time of the year provides us, I think, a really neat and interesting thought project. Because as, as we... As, as, as our present sufferings not worth comparing to what's coming, I think the created order, I know, not I think, the created order that we see, creation in corruption, is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. And we're going to tie these things back together here in a second. Creation to personal pain. When we go on these foliage drives, we, we drive home and we see those sassafras trees. Orange. I'm just learning about sassafras trees like two days ago. They, they're orange, or that maple, that fire maple when we see. That's creation in exile. That's creation under a curse. And as our personal pain and suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed, ne neither is creation corrupted worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. There, there are colors for us to discover that, what was that movie that, what's his name, James uh, Cameron made a few years back that everybody loved? that had all the colors, Avatar. Remember all the, all the colors in Avatar and everybody thinking, oh my goodness, look at the creativity of this. That has nothing on what's coming. And we'll look back on this time as the shadow land. And we'll look back on this time as the monocolor. It will be brand new. And we'll see things as they were intended to be. And as certain as Jesus is returning, restoration is coming. Creation in corruption is not worth comparing to creation re restored. Creation will be as free as the sons of God are free. And as we wait, know that God will bring this restoration. It's certain hope. Future glory gives hope for the present for the created order. If we keep talking about creation as being human. Future glory gives hope to creation. They will see the sons of God restored. And if creation can wait, she will have her day. But it's not just creation. So let's move from the, the big picture down to us. Today, your tears that you cry tonight. Because I know that a lot of us are coming in this door really happy. Really happy. Things are great. I don't want to be Debbie Downer to you. But I know others came in here and they barely got here. Barely. And theology and the Bible, it's, it's ground level stuff. It's helpful. And if we can take a step back, it may not be instantaneous comfort. But if you can lay down some demands that are placed upon God and just trust Him. And just walking out of here sure and certain that He loves you. Just reminded that He loves you. He loves you. Even though you're crying with those tears, He's present with you. 
And you can keep demanding him give you answers or keep trying to figure it out. Or you can, again, just be comfortable with his presence. Comfortable. Comfortable. Ryan always gets on to me for how I say comfortable. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, so now we're back. We've, we've gone from kind of the metaphor, the creation metaphor, the creation case study, and now we're back to us. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So it's not only creation groaning. It's us. We know the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit alive in us, Spirit inside of us. We know that there are some things to be fixed. We look at this world and we see personal pain. We see heartache. We see Mental health crisis. We see sex slavery. We see abortion. We see real bad things. And we hate it. We hate it for a reason. It's terrible. And we see it. And inside of us, we long, we groan. As those who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, we see things and groan in ways that the non-Christian world or the greatest angry atheist can never groan. We groan inwardly now waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We ache for our big brother Jesus to return. You know, U2 has this song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Still haven't found. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You know, we're all Christians here. We love you too, right? Uh, thanks, Bobby. So... I used to think, boy, that's sad, Bono. You know, you found Christ, but you still haven't found what you're looking for. I get it more now. I have Jesus, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I'm still a pilgrim in this world, and this world is not my home. I want my big brother to return. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And there's going to be a heartache inside of every one of you that you just know is there. Even you know Jesus, you're satisfied as you can possibly be. You've got above the sun, as Ecclesiastes talks about, and you have communion with the God of the universe, but there's still an ache in you waiting and longing for His return. Because none of us see Jesus face to face right now, but there's one day that we will see our God face to face. And we long for that day. And we ache for that day. And we want Him to return and it may even be mixed. Well, you know, used to when you're growing up, you're just, I just want to get married first. Please, honeymoon first. Before you return, Jesus. You know, that's the cry of every 16-year-old boy. <laughs> but you grow up, and then you see your kids, and you realize that if Christ was to return right now, we would shed no tears about it. That we didn't get to see our children grow up and be grandchildren, grandparents, and great-grandparents, and see all the things and experience all the things that we want to experience in this life. Jesus, big brother Jesus, please come. Please come and fix the futility. Fix it. And inwardly, we groan, we, we groan for the redemption of our bodies. We were built for eternity. Our hearts keep looking for it. We know we groan inwardly because someone has actually physically grown inwardly because you can feel the joint pain in the mornings. You take your glucosamine, but that joint pain keeps coming. You, know, you take your vitamins or your vitamins, however you want to call it, and... Your body still aches and you feel that you don't recover. The older you get, you don't recover in the ways you used to recover. And Your body aches knowing that I want the redemption of our bodies. And what do we wait for? The same thing creation waits for, the revealing of the sons of God, we are waiting for. The redemption of our bodies. It says here, we ourselves who have the first fruits grow inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of of our bodies. Now we, we have to unpack this just a little bit. We're almost done. Hang with me. We are adopted sons and daughters right now. And we have to wait for our adoption. You are saved right now. And one day you will be saved. You have the inheritance of God right now. But you also have to wait for it. Because all of God's promises upon you, the promises of God, we don't get right now. 
you don't get a glorified body until Christ returns. You don't get it right now. It's promised. It's yours. It's procured for you. It's stored and waiting for you. But you don't get it right now. That's why I'm wearing glasses. That's why George is wearing glasses. We don't have restored bodies yet. But one day we will. And it's the same with the adoption of sons. Are you the sons and daughters of God? Well, if you have the Spirit of God within you, if you're a Christian, then yes, indeed, right now you are. But one day, you're going to see your Heavenly Father. And you're going to be adopted. All those who have been adopted will be adopted. And what's promises will be a reality. What's future will be now. What seems so distant will be very present. You're going to be adopted, actually, brought into the family of God, not just with promises, actually. Future glory is help in present sorrow. If you're currently struggling, your eternity, eternity, your life is a vapor. And whether you're a baby that's aborted in the womb, vapor. Or you get to live to 105 years old, vapor. Vapor in the scale of eternity. And you know what Jesus has done for you? He's promised to wipe away your every single tear. And He's promised on the scale of eternity, full joy. He's, he's bought it for you, full joy. He hasn't just bought you and going to be bringing you into His presence for you to be depressed or anxious, or angry for the rest of eternity. He, he redeems your bodies, your mind. And you will have joy forevermore. That's the scale. Of, that's what Jesus did for you. And for the weary soul, just, just know and be comforted even now by the fact that you won't be weary forever. Your eternity, billions of years from now, billions, we will be on this earth with the Lord and with each other. How well will we know each other after a billion years? Simpler times is going to be a lot more developed then. <laughs> we're going to know each other. And we're going to know the Lord. And we're going to be happy. Happy. Full joy forevermore. Never getting bored. Never tapping your foot at the doctor's office because you won't be at the doctor's office. Never looking at your clock or having to kill time on a phone. You don't have to kill time. You're not bored. You have stuff to do. You have work to be done for God's glory. Joy forevermore. And in this hope, future glory is our hope for present sorrow. And look at verse 24. In this hope, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he has seen? He sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In this hope. Now, we could get into the deep doctrine of God's impassibility and talk about the difference of God hoping and humans hoping. But I digress. If you're interested in that, talk to me, and we can talk about that. But we're told that in this hope, in this hope of future glory, future glory, in that hope, we were saved. We were saved. We were saved. Future hope is included in salvation. When you were saved, Jesus saved you at the cross, and then it was applied whenever you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And then in that salvation, past event, whenever you were converted or born again, included in that salvation is the promise of future glory. So Jesus did not just save your soul. He did save your very body. This is very physical. Your bodies will be saved, not just your soul. Heaven is not an ethereal, heavenly, cloudy land where we get together and everybody's assigned their number-stamped harp with your engraved name on it to sing around and just sing Amazing Grace all the days of our life together in weird robes. That's not heaven. Heaven is fleshly and it has colors and it's vibrant and you can punch one another there in fun and you can go fishing, I think, in heaven. The seas will be no more, but hopefully lakes and bodies and lake bodies and rivers and all of that. But Jesus doesn't just save our souls to mystical land up there. He saved our bodies. Salvation includes certain hope. Now, eternity will not include, let me just hear this say this, eternity will not include 
head scratching, wondering, why was it the way it was? Why did my life unfold the way it did? Heaven will not include those lingering, frustrating questions that you just can't figure out. We will have a restored mind. And we will understand the suffering of our lives and the lives of the world in ways we cannot comprehend right now. We will see. We will understand. We will say, yep, got it. And that's beautiful. I didn't understand then. And I complained and demanded gummy bears. Now, 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 now. I just didn't know. God was working it out. I didn't see. I had this much perspective. This much. That's all I had. Eternity will not include that. We hope in the fact that our pain and the pain of this world is not pointless or accidental. I want you to hear me say that again. Our hope is in the fact, one day we'll see this, that our pain and the pain of the world is not pointless or accidental. What is the alternative to what we're talking about here? God being sovereign over it all and over His fatherly care over our lives, intending difficult things for us even. As we do for our children, by the way. That's why we set them up and say it's okay if they lose. Because a child who wins all the time, or at least thinks he wins all the time because he's been allowed to win all the time, grows up being intolerable. A child who's never spanked or disciplined in love, if you don't discipline your children, I'm going to tell you how to spank or anything like that, you have to discipline your children. And if you don't, you hate them. We discipline our children because we know that they become absolutely intolerable human beings when we don't. And God, in love, loves us so much that He will draw near to us and He won't just discipline us and say, you're on your own. His discipline or difficult things that go on in our lives, He's like, hey, I'm with you here. Commune with me. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. And I'm going to even give you promises that this is out of my fatherly love and it's going to be okay. So what's the alternatives? We can either say God is not omniscient, He's not all-powerful, and He wills a bunch of things that always happen that He can't stop. Well, God doesn't want that. Well, that's not very comforting. Why does it keep happening? The enemy is apparently overpowering God. We could say Satan and demons have more power than God's ability to try to stop them. We could say that suffering is pointless and the God of deism is right, and everything has just happened chance, and God just made the clock, wound it up, backed away, and said, do your best. And it isn't purposeful. But there's just something in me that thinks that your deepest pain, if there's no purpose in it, that's scarier. That's a scarier reality for you than to believe that God just wasn't present, or that Satan somehow had victory over your life, while God was just saying, boy, I wish that didn't happen. Because if deep pain is pointless, that's pain upon pain. Or we can say that we are saved with the hope that God will make all things new. That He cares for His sons and daughters. He loves us. We can trust Him. We are saved with the hope that we will one day understand our pain and the pain of the world. We are saved with the hope that God will fix all things and make us whole we can't see it now, but we hope for it. And it will come. So what do we do now? What do we do now? Well, number one, we recognize that Jesus is with us. If you're going through pain right now, Jesus is with you. Don't buy the lie. The enemy wants you to lie. buy the lie that you're alone. You're not alone. Jesus is with you. He's walking with you, and he loves you. You don't have to figure everything out. You don't have to ask the questions why or wonder or anything like that. He's with you. He will never leave you nor abandon you. We know that. God is fathering you right now in love. He is fathering you right now in love. Tune your ears to the fathering voice of God. Spurgeon said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. There's depths of His presence that we will never know until we cry tears of sorrow. There is love unending that we may never experience in this life because we've just not cried enough tears. And those who have suffered greatly know the embrace and the tenderness of their Heavenly Father 
in ways that they would have never experienced His love and embrace otherwise. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. But now, in verse 25, we wait. It says that we wait, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for what's coming with patience. And then this, when sermons like this and texts like this come out, it just, we just itch for it and we scratch for it and we want it so bad, but I want to understand why. Why, why, why? And we say, yes, your presence is enough, Jesus. Your presence is enough. But then we just want to know why. And Paul says, we wait. We wait patiently. And most people, this is how it is, I, I deal with this, demand answers from God now. And, and as we said, patience is, an aver- patience is a virtue in different eras, not our own. Patience is almost insulting in our day. Be patient and wait. It's almost like saying, it's almost like the person is hearing, hey, I hate you. Be patient and wait. Why are you doing that? Why are you torturing me? Be patient and wait? Why are you torturing me? Are you kidding me? I want my burrito now. Don't have to re- don't remake that thing. How dare you? Give me their order. Notice how impatient you are in the drive-thru? Or if they mess something up, think it, my gosh, this person is Hitler. <laughs> gonna, made me a wrong burger. They put pickles on it. And we look at anyone who makes us wait, and, and we really think, like, you're my fiercest enemy. And if we do that with God, we're going to be angry with Him rather than enjoying Him in our life. We're going to be questioning Him and demanding, and demanding that He line up with our wishes all the days of our lives. But we don't get to make demands from God. just don't get to. We get to wait. And we get to enjoy the presence of our Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You. I thank You that You put a passage like this of suffering in a very tender section of Scripture where it's full of hope and it's full of joy and it's full of promises. And I just thank You that the deepest questions of life that people have been trying to answer from ages past, we have answers to in the Bible. And it's not the why. It's not answers of like, why, did the, why does this stuff happen? We, that's, you don't, that's not what You give us. I thank You that You say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to give you answers to that, but I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to love you, and I am going to bring you joy. And so, God, I pray that right now we could have, if there's any here that have sorrow, that there would be joy in sorrow. There would be joy in the sorrow right now. And that you'd give them hope, and you would remind them of your promises, that one day you'll, you'll bring answers that suffice. And right now, we just get to enjoy your presence. So just help us, encourage us. Help us to be prepared one day in the future, not to live in fear, but whenever it is, help us just to be prepared when something hard happens or something difficult happens, walk in stride, say, my Father's with me, Jesus is with me, things are going to be okay, I know He's got me. I don't have to be afraid. If God is for us, who could be against us? If I'm His Son, what do I have to be afraid of? And so just help us. Holy Spirit, lead, I trust that you will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If anybody would like to pray.